may be struggling remember you don't have to be there to be there you could say how while you will get a fake tattoo you can ask with an app if it works for you you could chat on the game kick off your flip-flops you can ask on your couch while you binge watch whatever 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 gets you talking reach out to a friend about their mental health learn how you can help at seizetheopera.org brought to you by the ad council american foundation for suicide prevention and the jet foundation Welcome, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting off the day with some baseball talk, looking at the offseason roster situation that the Pirates have in their hands currently. A lot of players that are on the team right now fighting for roster spots. I know I've talked in the past about Cole Tucker when the whole Gregory Polanco situation happened, about him getting called up to get at bats and fight for his roster spot, but he's certainly not the only player on the roster doing such. And in fact, there's more than likely more players on the team fighting for a roster spot for next season and beyond than there are players who know for sure they will be on the roster. Of course, because of that, I'm not going to 
go down through the entire active roster because that would be pointless and you'd get tired of hearing me ramble off names. I'm sure you can kind of have an idea of who's on the team right now, get a feeling of who we who will be back next year, who won't be back, and those that are essentially fighting for their lives. But really what I want to look at now is the Rule 5 draft for the Pirates, and that is going to have major implications for them with how they handle roster moves, not just for free agency, players that they want to release or players that they want to sign and then have to release someone, waiver claims, etc., but also making sure that their prospects are getting tagged onto the 40-man roster so that the organization knows that they won't potentially get claimed by another organization. The last thing you want to do if you're the Pirates is let a top prospect get claimed by another organization all because you didn't want to clear a 40-man roster spot for them and then now one of your elite starting pitching prospects or your best hitting prospect in your entire farm system is in your division rivals organization now and then will haunt you for the next five to ten years. So there's, of course, a list of players that are Rule 5 eligible this coming off season, and there's a lot of big names in that prospect list. Braxton Ashcraft, who has been a phenomenal right-handed pitcher down in high A with the Greensboro Grasshoppers, Jihuan Bay, second baseman and shortstop for the Altoona Curve, another one that would surely be protected with the Rule 5 draft because of his potential. I know in the past he had his issues off the field, but he appears for the time being to have settled down and really been fully focused on baseball, which is exactly what you want to see out of him, and it's why players like Jihuan Bay get those second opportunities despite having off-field issues. Other players in the forms of prospects that you could see getting tagged onto the 40-man roster, Michael Burrows, another right-handed starting pitcher that has had success in Greensboro with the Grasshoppers that has allowed the Pirates to establish a core of young talent down there. And that's why Ben Charrington is not really promoting anyone from Greensboro up to Altoona because the Grasshoppers are going for a championship. Michael Burrow is certainly going to be playing a part in that. Michael Escado, one of the prospects that the Pirates acquired recently in the offseason, he was a part of the four-player deal in which Jamison Tyone was sent to the New York Yankees, despite not being in the organization very long, already Rule 5 eligible based upon when he was drafted. So I would not be shocked to see the Pirates have him on the 40-man roster. And then, of course, you get into the names like Drake Fellows, Matt Fraser, who has been on a tear with the Altoona Curve, only a matter of time before we see him in AAA Indianapolis. Matt Gorski, another big name. And then even some of the smaller names like Alexander Mojica, 
another prospect that the Pirates have recently acquired, excuse me, there's so many names. Andy Rodriguez, one of the bigger pieces in the Joe Musgrove trade. Blake Sable, another highly touted prospect in the organization. You're looking at probably between seven to eight of these prospects that are going to be tagged onto the 40-man roster to avoid them being picked up in the Rule 5 draft, which then complicates things for Ben Charrington in saying, okay, well, now that I know I have these seven or eight prospects that I need to ensure on the 40-man roster, which seven or eight of my players on the 40-man currently do I have to call in and tell them they no longer have a job in this organization? And again, that doesn't even include what transpires with free agency or even the organization just saying, you know what, we've seen enough from this player, it's time for us to move on and just outright releasing someone because that has happened and that will happen. Or at the very least, they get designated for assignment and then ultimately either released or outrighted to AAA Indianapolis where they no longer hold a 40-man roster spot or even an active roster spot. So just different things like that lead to some, or it will lead to a lot of interesting talk this offseason as to how the Pirates go about their business, where they see things with these prospects and who is going to be big parts of the future, and who they feel is, who they feel like they can be a little bit aggressive with and expose. Now, the likelihood of the Pirates losing some of these prospects, of course, is dependent upon how they've performed over the past several years down in the minor leagues. But teams are not going to like team up against an organization and say, okay, we need to take players from the Pirates organization, deplete their farm system. If there's someone talented, then of course the Pirates might lose multiple prospects. But at this point, I would say it would be a max of two, three at most. There's no way that the Pirates would lose six, seven, or more prospects in one Rule 5 draft. And if by some slim, slim, slim chance that happened, yes, it's frustrating as a Pirates fan, but it, that would go to show how much depth and talent that Ben Charrington has acquired in the farm system. So in a way, it would really be a compliment to him, and he would have no issues replacing them in a short time frame. Now, with the roster, one of the names in the organization that I honestly think will be back next season is Ben Gamble, whether it's as a starter or as the fourth outfielder. There is Travis Swaggerty, Jared Oliva that are down in AAA Indianapolis knocking on the door to the big leagues. Travis Swaggerty probably would have been a September call-up had he not gotten hurt for Derek Sheldon, for Ben Charrington to see what he could bring to the table in Pittsburgh. But unfortunately, injuries happen. Regardless, Ben Gamble has been 
a significant part in this pirate offense since he was first acquired by the organization. You just look at his splits. Over the last seven games, he's hitting 280. The last 15, just 184, and then 220 over the last 30. So, why, yes, he is in a bit of a slump right now, as of late, with the team being the Pirates as a whole, has been overall successful as he's hitting 253. He has 22 RBIs to his name and seven home runs. So you're getting some production out of him at the plate. You're getting solid defense in the outfield. There's no reason why he should not be a serviceable fourth outfielder next year. Even if you say we want Brian Reynolds in center, we'll have Yoshi Sutsugo drop a few pounds. We're going to play him in right field, and we want Travis Swaggerty out and left. That's fine, but then you can keep Ben Gamble as your fourth outfielder, and then that's really the best scenario for the Pirates because you get the power of Sutsugo's bat in the lineup. He can be your right fielder. You get to see what Travis Swaggerty brings to the table by th- throwing him in left. Of course, Reynolds a lock to man center for as long as he's in the Pirates organization. And then you keep Gamble on the bench that can mentor Swaggerty, fill in as needed, and still find a way to get him some quality at-bats. I don't see why the Pirates would not want to bring Ben Gamble back unless he decides to test free agency because he thinks that after the season he's had here in Pittsburgh, he might get a better offer with a team closer to contending or one that is contending. And if that's the case, then you can't really blame him because he's doing what's best for his career and he wants to win a World Series. But from an organization's perspective, which is what I'm looking at here, there's absolutely no reason why the Pirates shouldn't at least attempt to bring Ben Gamble back or even lock him up for sure because of what he brings both offensively and defensively. He's only 29 years old, so they can't even use the excuse of, well, he's starting to decline because of his age. Yes, he's approaching the ever-dreaded 30 in professional sports, But that doesn't mean that once you turn 30, it's an automatic guarantee your production will start to decline. Look at Yadier Molina. He has been performing at that high of a level for several and several years now, well beyond the age of 30 and beyond the age of 35. So there's not even a reason for the Pirates to use age as an excuse when it comes to Ben Gamble because Gamble is certainly showing that he can produce at a consistent level over the course of a long stretch of games. Ben Gamble was not with the Cleveland Indians for very long this season. Had just 17 plate appearances and even less at-bats because, of course, every plate appearance doesn't get recorded as an at-bat. So... For Ben Gamble, 
much of his season has been here with the Pirates. And I think he has made a very significant impact on this team, the culture in the clubhouse, establishing himself as a veteran who brings a lot of experience to the table and should ultimately be rewarded for that by coming back next season. And if for some reason, like I said, the Pirates decide that they don't want to bring him back, then they need to find someone who is a serviceable outfielder like Ben Gamble in free agency. I talked last Monday about the pressure building on Ben Charrington to turn things around now in free agency. Okay, you have the prospects, the quality and the quantity down in the minor leagues. They're starting to develop. We're seeing that. But for the time being, you've got to fill the current Pirates team with those stopgap players, go out and get some guys in free agency, reshape the bullpen, and start to find a way to make this team competitive so that when the guys like Henry Davis, Nick Gonzalez, Quinn Priester, etc., get to the big leagues, the team is running on all cylinders, ready to go, and can contend for a wild card spot right away, if not make a division push. Because let's face it, the NL Central right now and over the next few years is going to be fair game. The Cubs are entering a rebuild. They sold off a lot of top talent at this deadline. Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez. I mean, it's only a matter of time before Wilson Contreras leaves. So they're starting a rebuild. Yes, the Brewers are towards the top right now, but their farm system is depleted. The Cardinals, they have a lot of talent right now too, but their farm system isn't where it needs to be in order to help them in the future. Now, of course, Milwaukee and St. Louis benefit because they spend more in free agency than a team like the Pirates have in the past. But, of course, that certainly can change. The Reds and the Pirates are the teams in the NL Central right now that have the best minor league farm systems. And the Reds, they're not in a position to go for the division yet. They're still in the wild card hunt as of right now. But with their farm system producing a lot of talent at this point, it can certainly lead to a very competitive division in the near future with the Pirates and the Reds. And the, the thought of that right now just sounds absolutely incredible because, I mean, those two teams hate each other with a passion. The rivalry is absolutely huge. We saw that in 2019 when it seemed like each game that the two teams played, it was a minimum of two batters getting hit, multiple benches clearing brawls between the two. Of course, the biggest of all being when Amir Garrett left the mound to charge Trevor Williams and Kyle Crick in the Pirates' dugout. But there's still that tension. The animosity is always going to be there with these organizations. And so no matter how good or how bad the teams are, that tension will always be there. So with the Reds' farm system right now, the talent that it has up and coming, the same thing with the Pirates, I could 
very easily see those two teams atop the NL Central over the next four to five years. Maybe not every year within those four to five years, but definitely towards that the end of that four to five year window. It could lead to a bigger rivalry once again between these two teams, like what we saw in 2013 when the Pirates and the Reds ultimately faced off in that National League wildcard game at PNC Park. That's all I need to say about that because you know what happened, you know what the atmosphere was like, and it ended up in the Pirates' favor. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, the latest with the Pittsburgh Steelers analyzing their win yesterday over the Buffalo Bills, along with some roster decisions pregame that may have shocked some people, and how to avoid overreactions from just one week of play right here on BBN Online Radio. Is this the train to Desert Moon? Is all she said. But I know I'd heard that stranger's voice before. I don't
Welcome back, everyone, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Steelers looking at their week one victory over the Buffalo Bills. The Steelers getting out of Buffalo with a 23-16 victory in what ultimately was a very close game the entire 60 minutes. Of course, that was what we certainly expected out of this one, but not to the extent in which it truly was. Of course, the Steelers being held off the scoreboard the entire first half, Buffalo getting into the intermission with a 10-0 lead. They had a field goal on the opening drive in which a massive kick return set them up in great field position. And then in the second quarter, it was Josh Allen throwing a three-yard touchdown pass to put Buffalo ahead even further just before the break. Now, the Steelers ultimately made up their minds at halftime that they were going to go out with a bang, and they really did. Boswell, of course, tacking on a pair of field goals in the third quarter, got a third one to his name in the fourth that ultimately put Pittsburgh ahead for good. But we saw in the fourth quarter the Steelers finally get touchdowns going. The first one, of course, was a five-yard pass from Roethlisberger to Deontay Johnson. And then the second one was the blocked punt that was scooped up and returned by Ulysses Gilbert III. Now, in this game, of course, I didn't get to watch the entire thing because my soccer team was away in Kentucky this past weekend, hence why there was no show on Friday. But I did get to go back and watch the condensed game highlights that the NFL posts on YouTube. And I knew that the defense this season was going to be a very big part in the success that the team has. But I, I was also very underestimating of them because that defense yesterday absolutely carried the game for the team. To contain Stephon Diggs the way that they did was absolutely tremendous. Stephon Diggs yesterday, nine catches for 69 yards. No touchdowns. To contain Diggs under 75 yards, not even let him get into the end zone, is huge because I was very worried about that connection with him and Josh Allen even during the game yesterday, as I was checking my phone for score updates, I felt like it was only a matter of time before that connection really started to light up, and it never happened. But again, that's a credit to the Steelers' defense. Of course, the guys defensively up front, Cam Hayward, Tyson Aliwalu doing a great job, even Carlos Davis getting his name in there. The rushers, Highsmith, Watt, Ingram, absolutely fantastic. But the name that I really want to focus on in that defensive group was Cam Sutton. This dude was an absolute menace out there on the field yesterday. Because, I mean, anytime there was a big play that the Steelers needed to make defensively, 
He was involved somehow. He stopped the Bills on fourth and one early in the fourth quarter, forcing a turnover on downs that allowed the Steelers to drive down the field and get points on the board. If Buffalo converts that fourth and one in Pittsburgh's territory, the entire game landscape could be changed. And I could be on the air talking now about a Steelers loss to the Bills instead of a Steelers win over the Bills. That's how huge that play was. He made several pass deflections on deep balls down the field that really changed the outcome of the game. There were times that he was lining up out wide, but he was primarily in the slot, sometimes matched up against Diggs, sometimes matched up against receivers other than Diggs. And regardless of who he was up against, he really anchored down and just found a way to do what he needed in order to give the Steelers the best chance of winning. If Cam Sutton can play like that, over the course of a 17-game regular season now, then the Steelers have found a hidden gem in Sutton because that performance yesterday, there's nobody on the Steelers roster in their secondary that can top that performance. The only way it could have been better was if Sutton had managed to intercept Josh Allen. But that's a credit to Josh Allen because he's not going to throw the ball into, into situations very often where he's more than likely to get picked off. Now, offensively for the Steelers, of course it was going to be a tough game. We knew that already. Ben Roethlisberger had his work cut out for him. It was 18 for 32, 188 yards with just one touchdown, that being to Deontay Johnson. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with Ben throwing for under 200 yards. I don't even have a problem with only the one touchdown pass because that happens when you play good defenses. What concerns me about Roethlisberger's performance yesterday was the fact that he was 18 for 32, just over 50% in terms of completion percentage. And it's not a situation of he's throwing the ball to Chase Claypool. That's a contested ball. Claypool goes up and grabs it, and in the process of trying to bring it down, it gets smacked away by Tredavious White. I'm not talking about those types of incompletions. The ones that I'm focused on and worried about are when Najee Harris is running an out route from the backfield on a third and four, which happened yesterday, and Big Ben is overthrowing him by about three feet. When Najee Harris is wide open, there's no reason for Ben to be missing that badly. And it happened multiple times, which was the concern. Now, I'll chalk it up to, you know, Big Ben being in week one, another year older, still trying to get his feet wet with playing little in the preseason. But it's something that absolutely needs to be looked at over the next few weeks to ensure that it's not going to continue to happen because that could lead to some serious complications for the Steelers' offense. Ultimately, I thought that it was a fantastic game, one that I would have loved to have watched live and seen all of, but I'm certainly pleased with the result, 
it's a game now that the Steelers have in their back pocket that many did not think they would win. And that could ultimately be the difference maker in the beginning of January when the playoffs roll around. That could be the difference between traveling to a wild card game or hosting a wild card game. It could be the difference between hosting a wild card game or getting that first round by the only one now with seven playoff teams and having home field advantage. It could be the difference between being a wild card team or not being in the playoffs at all. And of course, being in the playoffs, that could be the difference between playing as a five seed rather than a six seed. Or it could be the difference between being a three seed instead of a four seed. So a game like that, while we don't know yet the impact that it will have come the time for tiebreakers to go into effect, it's certainly one that the Steelers are lucky to now have in their back pocket. And I don't mean that as the Steelers were lucky to win that game because the Steelers busted their rear ends to win that game, and they absolutely deserved it, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But the Steelers are lucky to have that game now in their hands from the perspective of what it could mean come playoff time. Now, before the break, I mentioned some roster decisions that were really surprising in terms of who was named inactive. Of course, we all knew Dwayne Haskins would be inactive as the third-string quarterback, the Steelers only dressing two quarterbacks on game days. But the big surprise for me was to see Robert Spillane be listed as inactive for this week, this past week, I guess I should say now. I understand Spillane had a very poor preseason showing, wasn't the best in practice, but to go from him being a big part in the Steelers' defense last year to now not even dressing in game one against the Bills, I think that's a huge statement in showing how far he's truly fallen because, of course, as fans, we don't get to see what happens on a daily basis in practice. So we're relying on what we see in preseason and what defensive coordinator Keith Butler tells the media, what head coach Mike Tomlin tells the media in terms of how guys are performing. But now that needs to be a wake-up call for Robert Spillane because he has clearly fallen down in the pecking order and he needs to find a way to work his way at least back onto making the game day roster He's not going to play over Schobert or Devin Bush. Absolutely not. But he needs to at least get a helmet and dress on game day because he was too good last year to just fall this far. And the talent that he brought to the table, biggest play, of course, coming to mind was when he stuffed Derrick Henry. If you have the guts and the strength to stuff Derrick Henry down near the goal line on a short yardage yardage situation, then that shows to your courage as a football player, your determination to do what you have to for the team, and then ultimately 
the quality of a football player you are. And I know Robert Spillane has that in him, and I know he can bring it back. It's just a matter of whether or not he does. And it's not going to be easy because Buddy Johnson had a good share of plays this preseason in training camp where he made some decent tackles, made some good reads in terms of knocking down passes or even in coverage, making sure that his man didn't even come close to catching the football. But Robert Spillane, I think, is certainly capable of bumping Buddy Johnson. And then I also mentioned, you know, avoiding overreactions after week one. There's so, so many fans, members of the media that will overreact after one week of football. Why? I get that it's only a 17-game schedule and every game matters. But to overreact after one game, what does that do other than create a lot more chaos amongst the team and amongst fans? Now, the biggest thing that I see fans overreacting about right now is the fact that Najee Harris played every snap yesterday. And he only had 16 carries for 45 yards. Freaking out about, oh, the running game isn't fixed. It's going to be the same thing as last year. Breathe. Understand that this is a new offensive line that has very few returners on it. And it's going to take time for them to really settle down and get a solid foundation of playing with each other and knowing their responsibilities, communicating and building that chemistry. And then that ultimately having an effect on Najee Harris with his ability to find holes. Now, with Harris yesterday playing every snap, yes, you don't want your star running back, star rookie running back, I should say, playing every single snap offensively. But if you look at the running backs behind Najee Harris, aside from Kalen Bellage, you're only left with Benny Snell. Could Bellage have came in yesterday during passing downs, possibly gotten a few catches out of the backfield? Yes. Could he have maybe gotten a few handoffs? Absolutely. But do we really want Benny Snell coming into the game unless he absolutely has to? I've seen enough of Benny Snell to know that he's only on this roster by the skin on the back of his neck. It's like when you're threading a needle trying to sew. That's how thin the layer is of Benny Snell not being on the roster. And the only reason why he's not is because Jalen Samuels was somehow even worse. So... You don't want Benny Snell coming into the game. When Anthony McFarland returns off of injured reserve, I would fully expect Najee Harris to kind of see his workload decline a bit. And you'll get McFarland in there, especially with Matt Canada's offense, the way he loves to run, jet sweeps, the end arounds, play action, throwing the ball to receivers, or rather running backs out of the backfield. And McFarland certainly can line up wide as a receiver. You're going to see McFarland 
a lot when he returns, and it's really going to reduce the snaps that Najee Harris has, which will ultimately make him more productive as he's able to go to the sidelines more, refresh himself, and come back out onto the field when they want to give him the rock and let him do his thing and find a way to be even more productive than he was in this game against Buffalo. There's a lot of time for the Steelers to fix the mistakes from yesterday. They have an entire week before their home opener against the Las Vegas Raiders. Plenty of time for all of that to change. Find a way for Ben Roethlisberger to become more accurate with his throws, whether it's something as simple as setting his feet, not overthinking things, trying to get the ball out too quickly. Whatever it may have been for Ben, there's time for that to get sorted out. The offensive line is going to be sorted out. The run game will be sorted out. And then, of course, the defense, well, just continue doing your thing because to only give up 16 points to that Bills offense yesterday and hold them in check as well as you did, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And if the Steelers defense can continue to play like that every single week, then the team is going to be in good shape to see themselves into a playoff spot as soon as possible this season. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, hockey talk for the final segment, looking at the significance of the Sidney Crosby injury and an opportunity for fringe players to sneak their way into the lineup with those injuries with Crosby and other ones previously mentioned right here on BBN Online Radio.
and we're back right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the final segment of Hockey Talk, looking at the significance of the Sidney Crosby injury. Now, of course, it was announced very recently that Crosby would be out for about six weeks after undergoing a successful wrist procedure. This, of course, transpiring on September the 8th, and Ron Hextall made mention to members of the press that this has been an injury that has bugged Crosby for years. He's had procedures done on it before, and so it's ultimately nothing new with him. We know that Crosby will be back as soon as possible, and when he does return, it will be the best version of him that we will get. Now, of course, Crosby will be set to miss all of preseason. The first preseason hockey game for the Penguins is just two weeks away from today. It will be at PPG Paints Arena against the Columbus Blue Jackets. It just doesn't seem possible that hockey season is already upon us. But nonetheless, it is. And whether you're ready for it or not, here it comes. But Crosby, of course, set to miss all of the preseason games. Will miss some of the beginning games of the regular season. The opener in Tampa Bay, definitely. He'll probably miss about two and a half weeks based on the current timeline of the regular season. Very insignificant amount of games. You could probably count on one hand and then maybe an extra finger or two of the number of games that Crosby will miss with only being out for six weeks and getting the surgery when he did. Now, the thing that it needs to be a relief for Penguins fans around the world is that it was something that has been done before with Crosby. Ron Hextall, I mentioned already, reiterated the fact that it's not a new injury. He's dealt with it for years. And we know the type of production that Crosby has put up over the years, even as recently as last season in the abbreviated 56-game calendar season. But, and that was with dealing with this injury. When he's going to come back stronger and better than ever without this nagging wrist injury, he's going to be even better than he has been, which I would be terrified to see that if I was an opposing coach, opposing defenseman, or an opposing goaltender. I mean, from the very beginning of the season last year, when the Penguins kicked it off against the Flyers and Crosby stole the puck right away from Carter Hart to get the Penguins on the board. Very few players in the league make that play, and Crosby was one of them. Now, the wrist may have not have been bothering Crosby at that point because it was game one of the season, but those are the kinds of plays that Crosby has made lately in seasons where the wrist has bothered him. Those types of plays are only going to increase in quantity when Crosby is 100% healthy. 
and it's going to make the Penguins that much better and put them in an even better position to be successful when the playoffs roll around and you see Pittsburgh in the top four of the, rather the top three of the Metropolitan Division and avoiding that wild card position that the Metropolitan will more than likely have because of the amount of talented teams in the division. I mean, last season was a challenge for the Penguins dealing with Washington, the Flyers, the Islanders, and the Boston Bruins when they realigned. But now we're going back to the typical divisions of the Metropolitan where you'll have the same first three teams I mentioned, the Islanders, the Flyers, the Capitals. You'll now have the Carolina Hurricanes in the mix who were the Central Division champions last season. You'll have the New York Rangers who continue to get better by the day. It's going to be a very tough season for the Penguins again, but they are certainly capable of finishing in that top three of the Metropolitan Division, even with the tough tasks that they have currently. I didn't expect the Penguins to win the Eastern Division last season, and they proved me wrong. They united as a team despite all of the man games lost with injuries accumulating, and they found a way to win on and win the division. And I would absolutely love to see that happen again this year with Crosby going to be missing the opening handful of games. We don't know when Evgeny Malkin is going to return. He could miss a month. He could miss two months, anywhere in between or possibly longer, depending upon how quickly he rehabs and gets set to return to the ice. But with players like Crosby out of the lineup, with Malkin out of the lineup, there's a lot of opportunities now for fringe players to take a step into the roster early on as we transition to the next segment. Guys like Evan Rodriguez, who would be fourth liners at best, now could potentially be a third line center with Crosby and Malkin out. You know, Jeff Carter sliding up to the first line, Luger presumably on the second line. Evan Rodriguez could be the third-line center. You could have someone like Brock McGinn, if he's capable of playing center, which I don't see why he wouldn't be. He could slide into a role as a center. You could get someone like Dominic Simone, who's certainly capable of playing center, take over one of the bottom six lines. And then, of course, the two... New guys that the Penguins brought in as of late, they signed Matt Bartkowski and Brian Boyle to tryout contracts. Of course, Bartkowski, a defenseman, so he would be competing for that sixth spot on the blue line, but Brian Boyle certainly capable of fighting for a bottom six spot in the time being with 87 and 71 not in the lineup. But that's where I'm talking about with guys who are fringe players getting these opportunities to establish themselves early on and then make roster moves tough when Crosby, when Malkin return to the lineup. Of course, now that I think about it, Brock McGinn primarily going to be on the left wing, 
he was a bad example to bring up there, but Dominic Simone could definitely see him slide into that center role. Would not be shocked at all if Brian Boyle won the job of fourth-line center right out of camp. And now what these guys can do, that you know, they just go out there, prove to Mike Sullivan, Todd Reardon, general manager Ron Hextall, that they can play at this level. And when the team gets fully healthy, they're absolutely deserving of that roster spot, which, again, could lead to some complications throughout the organization as to deciding who to ultimately make expendable when the time comes for the stars to return. Whether it's Crosby in a month or six weeks, or even Malkin in a month or two. These decisions are not going to be easy, but they're going to be ones that the Penguins will eventually have to make. And it's going to ultimately make the team better because while those players like Evan Rodriguez, like Dominic Simone, or even Brian Boyle, they might not be dressing for game day, but they will still be a part of the organization. They can still practice. They may be a healthy scratch even. And what that does is it's a testament to the depth that the Penguins have at the NHL level. No team has won a Stanley Cup without depth at the NHL level. If you look back, I use these examples a lot, 2016-2017, when the Penguins made their back-to-back Stanley Cup winning runs. Those teams had depth, not even just with the four lines of, you know, the HBK line being better than most teams' second lines. I'm talking about guys who you didn't really see a whole lot of that were considered players that were healthy scratches or those that rarely saw the ice. Of course, Zach Aston Reese was just making his way into the team then. You had, in 2016, Pascal Dupuis, who was ultimately on the verge of retirement after that season. But he started the year playing for the team, ultimately got his name on the Stanley Cup. And now I'm drawing a blank about other players that were the depth pieces, but when the Penguins won those Stanley Cups, you saw the number of players that weren't on the bench came flying out of the locker room with their jerseys on over top of full suits to enjoy the celebration of winning the Stanley Cup. That's the kind of depth I'm referencing at the NHL level. Not down in Wilkes-Barre, not down in Wheeling with the Nailers, at the NHL level that are ready to go and can jump into the lineup in the blink of an eye if something happens. And it's important to have that because, of course, the playoffs, it's such a large amount of games over such a short period of time, especially if you go on to win the Stanley Cup, and you may have players that are simply just too fatigued to go out there and dress. And it could be an hour and a half before puck drop when you find that out. So you have to stop what you're doing and make a decision in as short as time as possible 
of who's going to jump into the lineup, alert them of that, and give them enough time to get the skates laced up and ready to go. But, again, regardless of whether they're in the lineup or not, guys like Evan Rodriguez, Brian Boyle, they're going to play a part in this Penguins organization one way or another as the team continues to push and push for one more Stanley Cup with this core of Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, Dominic Simone, another name, again, that can find his way into the lineup early, but when the Stars return, may or may not see the lineup. Of course, Crosby liked playing with Simone, but Dominic Simone just isn't a first-line type of hockey player. He doesn't produce the way that you need a first-line winger to produce. And so, again, he could find a way to stick on the bottom six, or he may be a healthy scratch. But, again, he's depth at the NHL level, which is what you're seeing Ron Hextall bring in. And it wasn't an easy task for Ron Hextall to reshape this Penguins roster that he inherited from Jim Rutherford when Rutherford abruptly retired. But with the talent and the free agent, the free agents, excuse me, that Ron Hextall has brought in that are a combination of size and speed, it's the proper balance that the Penguins organization needs to fit the way Mike Sullivan wants to play, but to also have the size in the event that Tom Wilson wants to return to his typical goon antics, and then you have to go out there and take care of him. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best of the Online Radio. Once again, thank you for tuning in here today. Weather is absolutely beautiful here in Bethany, West Virginia, so be sure to go out and enjoy that if you're on campus. Hopefully it's nice wherever you are tuning into. And be sure to tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Have a great day, everybody.